women. A history that has never been straightforward. Oppressed largely throughout the world for having been deemed weaker, less significant and obsolete. Mothers. Rights secondary, their needs unnecessary and their desires unrequired. Vessels. Powerful. Voices loud when the opportunity was taken rather than offered. Fearless. Brave, pain-enduring and proud. Caring. Often first to help, first to listen and first to care for others. Courageous. The first through the wall always gets bloody, as was the case for the daughter of Irish immigrants in New York. This is her story. In Corning, New York, in 1879, a child was born. Her name was Margaret Higgins. Margaret was the daughter of two Irish immigrants. Aged 14, her father Michael left Ireland on his own with just a bag of clothes and a heart full of fear. When he arrived in America, as was the case with many of the Irish at the time, in order to stay in the New World he was forced into the army during the Civil War. In the army, his role was to beat the drums of war as battles began, rallying troops behind his beat. When the war ended and he left the army, he studied medicine for a time but left to become a craftsman. He earned his living as a stonecutter, chiseling angles, saints and tombstones out of rock. Michael was a free thinker and by the time he reached adulthood he had declared himself an atheist and was a very active member of the suffragist movement and a supporter of a woman's right to a free education. He was a very firm believer in equality. Margaret's mother Anne came to the Americas during the famine. With the last few coins he could muster Anne's father wrapped his young child in his warmest coat and made the journey across the Atlantic in the hope of a meal. When they landed in Canada, they settled in the Irish community who tried their best to look after each other. It was in this community that Anne and Michael met. In 1869, the two married and started a family. Margaret was not the only child of her parents. Over a period of 22 years, Anne conceived 18 times, giving birth to 11 children. These pregnancies and heartbreaks took a massive toll on Anne. At the young age of 49, her body and soul had had enough and she passed away.
Margaret was the sixth of the eleven children who were born and as such she grew up in a very lively and playful household. As Anne grew up, thanks to the visions her father had of the world, she had a great sense of a need to help others. As a result of this, she focused her schoolwork towards becoming a nurse. Her two older sisters put a fund together for her and in 1900 she began to study for her dream job. Whilst in White Plains Hospital doing her training, she came across a German-born man called William Sanger. The two became very giddily involved with each other and in 1902 they married. As was the custom for women at the time, when they married, Margaret placed her studies to one side and left them altogether. She was destined to be a mother and homemaker and satisfy such expectations of simple-minded men. In the early years of their marriage, Margaret suffered from consumption but was able to have three children of her own. The family of five settled in Westchester, New York. Before they settled here, however, Margaret had an experience which would not just shape her future, but that of women across the world. Scale Fadiger. In 1904, Margaret's sister Ethel was married to a man called Jack Byrne. Jack was abusive towards Ethel. He would hit her from one room into the next and the slightest of inconveniences would set him off. A cup too cold, a plate too hot and Ethel would be forced to fear for her life. Ethel had two children, Jack and Olive. Jack was just over a year older than Olive and both children were delivered by Margaret. Having been there for their births, Margaret had a very unique bond with her niece and nephew. One night, Margaret was staying in Ethel's home while Jack was drinking in a local bar. Margaret couldn't sleep that night as poor Olive was having an awful time in her room, crying so hard she was making herself sick. After hours of singing songs and rocking the young child back and forth, Olive eventually dozed off. As she did, Margaret placed her gently back into her bed and went to go to sleep. As her head touched her pillow, she heard the front door slam open and a thundering, bumbling Jack bellowed through it. Being the man of the house, he had no thought for pleasantries for anyone else in the building as he barraged himself into the kitchen and then up the stairs. As the furless ape navigated his Everest, his noisy efforts woke and frightened Olive. Furious with the crying girl, Jack stumbled into her room, caught her by the legs and tossed her into the snow outside. He then went to bed. I don't know what the coldest you have ever been is. I don't know if you can imagine the sensation of real cold. 
but Olive was cold. I don't mean a cold where a second jumper or a vest may help you steady your shivering hand. I mean the type of cold where, although you are gripping yourself tight for warmth, your shaking limbs continue to unravel any efforts you make. Olive was only a baby. She lay there, face down in the snow, trying to figure out what had happened. After fighting with the snow on her belly, she managed to turn over. As she did, she saw Margaret running towards her with the blanket from her bed and Jack in her arms. She grabbed the child from the snow and without losing pace, wrapped her in the blanket and continued running. The two children were taken to their grandparents' home where they were cared for. Margaret and her family lived happily in their home in Hastings on Hudson until 1911 when a fire roared through their house and left it in a crumbling heap on the earth. As her husband worked as an architect and a house painter, Margaret returned to nursing to raise funds for the family. Driven on by her father's beliefs, Margaret began to become involved in local politics and she dragged her husband along with her. To start with, she joined the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party. She also became involved in the 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike and the 1913 Patterson Silk Strike. Margaret also became involved with local intellectuals, left-wing artists, socialists and social activists, including John Reed, Upton Sinclair, Mabel Dodge and Emma Goldman. Her experience with these people and these organisations led her to believe it was time for her to teach the world about women. In 1911, she published a column called What Every Mother Should Know and followed it up 12 months later with a piece called What Every Girl Should Know. Both were written for the socialist magazine New York Call and were sex education pieces describing how women were not just vessels for the children of men. Many readers of the magazine were outraged by Margaret's writings and they were deemed to be too frank in their descriptions of sexuality. The world was not quite ready for the minds of women with independent thought. In 1916, both articles were turned into books. Whilst continuing to work as a nurse, Margaret ensured to pay special attention to the needs of the working class. She understood her bloodline was one of poverty and how a simple act of kindness could mean everything to the misfortunate. During this time, she met with women who were suffering from the wounds of self-induced abortions. A necessary act due to poverty and the misadventures of powerful men. Many of the women didn't know that having sex could make a woman pregnant, such was the education provided to them at the time. 
due to the Comstock Law of 1873, information about contraception was illegal. In an effort to help these women, Margaret took it upon herself to educate them. She visited every library she could find to look for any form of literature on the matter that was available. In the whole of New York, she was unable to find any article with information on contraception. Already furious with this, Margaret had not yet experienced the placing of the final straw on her ability to wait. Then came Sadie Sachs. Sadie was a woman who Margaret came across while treating the working class women. She had performed a self-induced abortion and it had gone badly. She had torn herself, got infections and couldn't prevent the levels of bleeding she was experiencing. Whilst Margaret was caring for her, Sadie told Margaret how she had sought help from a doctor. The doctor advised her that if she didn't want this type of thing to happen, she should be abstinent. In Sadie's own words, He laughed at me and said, Oh, you want to have your cake and eat it too. Well, it can't be done. Tell Jake to sleep on the roof the next time. Margaret spent a lot of time caring for Sadie and a real friendship began to form between the two. A few months after they first met, Margaret went to Sadie's home to treat her wounds. She found Sadie bleeding profusely, having attempted another abortion. Within a few hours of Margaret's arrival, Sadie had died. Margaret threw her equipment into the corner and announced she would not treat another case until she had made it possible for women in America to have knowledge of birth control. Given the connection between the deaths of the women as a result of self-induced abortions and their class levels, Margaret understood that contraception would solve many of the working class women's issues. She launched a campaign to challenge governmental censorship of contraceptive information through confrontational actions. In 1913, as a result of her focus on this new role and other marital issues, Margaret separated from her husband. In 1914, Margaret launched an eight-page monthly newsletter called The Woman Rebel, which promoted contraception using the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. A term she hated began to be used against her campaign, which was Family Limitation. To combat this, Margaret and her friends of anarchy began using the phrase birth control in its place. In her articles and speeches, Margaret stated that every woman should and would be the absolute mistress of her own body. Margaret wasn't just a voice, she understood how the law worked. She provoked politicians and powerful men with her speeches and articles. 
Her hope was that one of them would take exception and legally challenge her. It was in doing so she managed to make birth control a freedom of speech issue. This meant that public conversations and debates had to be had about free speech which focused on women and women's rights. In mid-1914, the Postal Service refused to allow any of Margaret's literature to be transferred through their system. They lobbied politicians to make it illegal for them to do so. Margaret wrote a 16-page pamphlet about various contraceptive methods and posted it across America. By the time the Postal Service caught on, she was already bound for exile in England. Whilst in England, she got involved with the various parties working towards equal rights for women. She began to write now not only about how to avoid pregnancy, but also how sex can too be an enjoyable experience for women without consequences. She also began to write about her fears of overpopulation, poverty, famine and war as a result of unplanned pregnancies. At the 5th Neo-Malthusian Conference in 1922, she became the first woman to chair the event. Margaret then ventured out to the rest of Europe to understand how birth control and women's rights were being managed. In Holland, she first learnt about diaphragms. She bought as many as she could and began sending them to random women across America with instructions on how to use them. She marked the boxes as being three-in-one oil for the man of the house. In 1916, Margaret smuggled herself back into America and opened the first family planning centre in America, in Brooklyn with her sister Ethel. She was arrested nine days later. She was released after a $500 bail was paid. The following morning, she opened her centre again and was arrested again. This time, she and Ethel were charged with the distribution of contraception and being a general nuisance to society. Ethel went on trial and was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse, a classic punishment for the children of Ireland. In protest, Ethel went on hunger strike and became the first woman in America to be force-fed for doing so. After 10 days, Margaret pleaded for her sister during her own case and Ethel was pardoned. Margaret then was convicted and told by the judge that women did not have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there would be no resulting conception. Fuel, match, fire. She was offered a more lenient sentence if she promised not to break the law again, but she replied, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. She too was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. 
Whilst being punished, her trial was gaining notice around America, and due to social pressure, in 1918, Judge Frederick Crane issued a ruling which allowed doctors to prescribe contraception. During World War I, Margaret's voice went quiet as the world spun into hell. She began to produce a monthly newsletter called Birth Control Review, but the people of America were more concerned with their sons being slaughtered in towns they could not pronounce, and progress stood still while their blood spilt. When the war ended, she rose again, and in 1921 she found the Birth Control League. This was done to gain support from the middle classes. She then founded the Clinical Research Bureau, the first legal birth control clinic in America. In 1922, Margaret travelled to China, Korea and Japan. In China, Margaret observed that the primary method of family planning was female infanticide, the deliberate killing of female babies. She went on to establish a family planning clinic in Shanghai. Between 1920 and 1926, 567,000 copies of Margaret's books on birth control were sold. She also produced two autobiographies which are still available to purchase today. In 1929, Margaret worked with African-American leaders who sought her help in educating their community on birth control. With James H. Hubbard, she opened a clinic in Harlem in 1930. The clinic had full-time doctors, but more remarkably for the time, the staff of the clinic, from doctors to the admin staff, were from the African-American community. Margaret made the point that should any staff, volunteers or patients express any signs of racism, they would be expelled from the clinic. Later, in 1929, Margaret formed the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control in order to lobby for legislation to overturn restrictions on contraception. In 1937, she became chairman of the newly formed Birth Control Council of America. In 1948, she helped found the International Committee on Planned Parenthood, which evolved into the International Planned Parenthood Federation in 1952, and soon became the world's largest non-governmental international women's health, family planning and birth control organisation. In the early 1950s, Margaret encouraged philanthropist Catherine McCormick to provide funding for biologist Gregory Pincus to develop the birth control pill which was eventually sold under the name Enovid. Throughout her life, Margaret's work with minorities and the poor earned praise from Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. When Martin Luther King was unable to attend the Margaret Sanger Award Ceremony in May 1966, Mrs. King read her husband's acceptance speech that praised Margaret but first said in her own words. Because of her dedication, her deep convictions, and for her suffering for what she believed in, I would like to say that I am proud to be a woman tonight. Mm -hmm. 
Margaret passed away in 1966, aged 86, as a result of heart failure, a year after the US Supreme Court case Griswold v. Connecticut, which legalized birth control in the United States. She rests now in Fishkill, New York, next to her sister Nan Higgins and her second husband Noah Slee. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanam Dom, Gurav Mahakut, Slananish.